Okay. <laughs> so, Kalimera, uh, uh, welcome to all. Um, I would like to thank Nikos for the invitation and also mainly to thank him for uh, inviting my distinguished uh, panelists. Um, I'm sure we are all uh, looking forward to listen to their uh, expert views. Uh, starting from my right with Mr. Anders Sohem, Technical Sales Manager, Yara Marin, correct. Um, Mr. George Saroglu, Chief Operating Officer, Chacos Energy Navigation. Mr. Hamis Norton, President, Stalbar Carriers. Mrs. Claire Wright, Business Economics Manager, Sir International Trading and Shipping Company. And Mr. Iraklis Prokopakis, Chief Operating Officer, Danaos Corporation. Ah, uh, he, he's come. Okay, okay. So, um, I would also like to welcome you at this first panel of the day. Um, so, reality hit us uh, from 1st January, and now what? It appears that the sky has not fallen um, due to, to this significant regulatory change. Um, and it seems that it has been, uh, we have a uh, smooth implementation at least uh, the first two months in terms of fuel oil availability and uh, fuel oil quality. However, uh, the rapid rose of the prices of compliant fuel oils, although these have now started to stabilize, created a, a market distortion which seems to be painful for uh, some ship operators. Concerns in the industry still remain for the compliance enforcement of the carriage ban, which is uh, coming soon in 10 days, 1st March, but also for any possible impact on machinery resulting from the long-term usage of the very low sulfur fuel oils and the technical and operational challenges associated with the use of exhaust gas cleaning systems. So today we are going to discuss these issues and I will go straight to the panel and um, ask um, Mr. Saroglu uh, if he believes that the global SUFU cap implementation has gone uh, relatively smoothly. Just to mention that uh, the IMO Secretary General, Mr. Kitak Lim, stated at at the end of January, that the implementation has gone uh, relatively smoothly. Do you agree with this? Well, I think overall the answer is yes. Uh, we have to split uh, the period prior to uh, Jan 1st, and there were uh, issues associated with both uh, the availability, the quality, and the price uh, of uh, compliant fuels. And I think it was... Uh, I mean, there are, there, is, there are reasons behind that. The main reason has been that uh, a lot of uh, suppliers waited for the last uh, month, 45 days, 
in order to make sure that uh, their barges uh, and their networks were ready to comply with 0.5 at a time when we had uh, increased demand for 0.5%, especially from uh, shipping companies. So that created uh, a distortion, that created uh, a price uh, spike, which uh, since then, and also considering that the price of uh, oil has come down significantly from the levels that we have seen in the fourth quarter of uh, last year, the price of, uh, first of all, the availability of 0.5% fuel oil has improved significantly. We don't have the problems that we used to face. Even in uh, big ports, big hubs like uh, Singapore, where it made uh, more sense, uh, at least uh, for us, we're not on scrubbers, to basically bunker uh, gas oil, 0.5 or 0.1% in December, because it was much cheaper and this doesn't make too much sense, but it was much cheaper than 0.5%. So availability today has uh, improved. The technical problems that we have experienced, uh, they seem to be improving uh, as well. So if, uh, if we have to say something, uh, it is that uh, the transition has gone, uh, is improving and is getting better. Uh, thank you, George. Uh, Mr. Norton, I, I know that you are operating um, a fleet of vessels that have been, uh, uh, you have carried out a significant retrofit of uh, exhaust gas cleaning systems. Uh, so Mr. Saraglu said that at least for the compliant fuel there are not issues now uh, for uh, availability. Uh, what about uh, heavy fuel oil? Uh, have you experienced any problems and issues on the availability? And what is your um, uh, perception about uh, the future availability of he heavy fuel oil? I mean, towards the end of this decade and beyond. So um, we really have not experienced any problems with the availability of heavy fuel oil um, you know, the, the, the major difference uh, between the bunkering market that we see, you know, today and the bunkering market we saw a year ago is that regardless of the type of fuel that you want to purchase, um, you have to give more notice to your bunker suppliers um, about what you want and where you want it. <laughs> Um, you know, a year ago, you could give a bunker supplier two days' notice, and that would be fine. And now, you know, a week or ten days is probably more prudent, um, uh, regardless of, of what sort of fuel you want. Um, you know, in terms of the availability of heavy fuel oil, I think it's going to be uh, available for as long as people um, want it, um, you know, it, it, uh, it has not dropped in price in any sort of catastrophic way, which tells you there's a demand for it. Um, and, you know, there's no shortage of supply. Um, you know, refineries have to work pretty hard to not make heavy fuel oil. And uh, as long as the price of heavy fuel oil is you know, reasonable as it is today, um, it does not necessarily make sense for refineries to use expensive equipment to convert heavy fuel oil to something else. And, and frankly, the process of converting heavy fuel oil into other grades of refined products produces a lot of excess uh, 
CO2 and is not necessarily good for the environment. Uh, thank you. Uh, maybe Mrs. Wright, uh, you could give us also feedback from the refinery sector in that respect for, for compliant fuels, but also for heavy fuel oil. Uh, what do you believe about towards also the end of, the, of this decade? Okay. Yes, so um, obviously we spent quite a lot of time preparing for the transition uh, from a fuel supply perspective, but also Shell is a ship operator, so we saw it from the other side as well. So we did have to make investments to increase the flexibility of our refineries, as you've alluded to, um, to enable us to produce um, a wider range of products, to lower the amount of heavy fuel oil that we produced, but also to increase um, the production of low sulfur fuel and distillate fuels, um, and to increase the ability to segregate and to um, uh, increase our blending capabilities. In addition to that, there was also um, the logistical work that was needed to enable the provision of multiple grades in, in different ports, so the actual supply part of the chain. And it took us time to work through uh, all of that, and so we do now supply a range of fuels in ports around the world to our customers and we did work closely with our customers in the run-up to the shift to make sure that we were able to supply the products they wanted in the ports that we supply them at. Um, our expectation is that the future of our product supply will depend on what our customers demand and that's likely to be a blend of the fuels that we supply now including probably an increased portion of LNG because when we look to the future, and particularly that period beyond 2030, obviously we need to be cognizant of what the IMO decides in terms of decarbonisation, and that will end up leading to a transition of the fuels that we see in the shipping market over the next 20 to 30 years. Thank you. Uh, now, um, let's talk a little about quality of the fuel. I would like to ask um, ship, ship operators, ship management, uh, Mr. Saroglu or Mr. Nortor to provide us their feedback uh, against the, the fuels and uh, if they are experienced any problems uh, out of specification. Could you please? Okay, again, uh, if you look at uh, the period leading to the 31st of uh, December and maybe a big part of uh, January, we were faced with uh, uh, three and a half main problems. I mean, and I'll explain what three and a half means. The first main problem was discrepancy between the sulfur content in uh, the bunker delivery note and the actual sulfur that uh, your analysis uh, produced. And we had uh, cases uh, where uh, you had uh, the difference being outside the reproducibility of the test, which uh, for fuel oil is 0.53%. We had cases where the sulfur, especially in November and December, has been even 0.75%. So that was the main, a big part of the, of the issues that uh, we faced. Of course, um, uh, the frequency now of this type of uh, uh, problems is coming down, and we have, uh, you know, most of the fuels that we have bunkered either directly or through our charters have been uh, in compliance with uh, max 0.5%. The second issue that uh, we have dealt with is, uh, you know, high sediments in uh, the fuel oil. There have been uh, many, many cases 
all over the world. You don't, uh, we have not seen uh, high sediments in just uh, one part of the world. We have seen it in America, we have seen it in uh, the Ara area, we have seen it in uh, Singapore. Uh, as a result of uh, asphaltines and or dirt, Again, the frequency of uh, these uh, incidents uh, is coming down, but uh, has not been uh, totally you know, eradicated or solved. We have an issue with uh, the acid number of uh, the fuel oil, because the majority of the fuels that are being produced uh, are blended fuels. Of course, it's not a problem that we just uh, deal right now with uh, the new compliant fuels. It was also a problem with uh, the 3.5% uh, fuels because there was, there was blending, they were doing blending in order to lower the viscosity of the fuel from 500 or 700 CST to 380. And um, in these blends, you have components that uh, are not supposed uh, to be there. And in order to really detect them, you need to go the extra mile and do significant additional tests that are both uh, cost significant amount of money. If you consider that the standard test, the standard fuel analysis test costs something like 180 to 200 dollars, and when you go to this uh, additional forensic analysis, it can cost you up to 2,000 dollars per sample. It's not just uh, the cost; it's the time period until you get uh, the results. There are not uh, that many labs, uh, specialized labs out there that can uh, produce, uh, at least this is uh, our view, because we have faced this type of problems uh, since 2007. So there are not uh, labs that uh, with consistency can produce maybe the same results. It very much depends on the chemist that is uh, doing uh, the test and on the libraries that this, uh, and on the acids that these libraries have, this, uh, sorry, these fuel testing agencies have as their libraries. So it's get a little, it gets a little bit uh, complicated, and I think it's going to be with us uh, for a long, long time. Uh, and last, just to give you an, an, an example, and it's, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm getting a little bit into technical things, we learned that uh, the Estonian sale oil exists. We know where Estonia is. We didn't know that Estonia had sale oil. And it's part that usually suppliers, especially Russian suppliers, put on their fuels in order to produce 0.5%. We understand that there is, a, a, there is a percentage that is supposed to be safe, and there is a percentage that is not, is, is not going to be safe. We had cases where this percentage was 3.5%. So if you take a fuel and 3.5% of this fuel is, uh, contains this type of uh, uh, phenols or oxygenated acids, when you try to hit the product, uh, it creates wax and then uh, you, know, you cannot really put the fuel into the engine. So, uh, and, the, and the, the, the half problem has been silicon aluminum, which we had one, one case where you know, it was supposed to be 60, which is the maximum, and uh, we got supplied something like in excess of 85. So these are the type of problems. For me, personally, the blending issue is, an, is a big issue and something that should be addressed and should be solved. Thank you, George. Uh, I don't know, Mr. Norton, have yes. you experienced any impact on the machinery, or do you believe the, the long-term usage? Because we might not see something in the short term, I mean the first uh, two months, but do you have any concern about the long, longer usage of uh, very low sulfur fuel compliant? Okay, so 
so first of all, I, I uh, have to admit to not having the same level of expertise as Mr. Siraglu um, in the technical details of, uh, of fuel, but um, you know, basically our experience so far has been not very different from our experience before IMO 2020 in that um, we're basically using heavy fuel oil, which is the same set of products we were using before IMO 2020. And then when we need a compliant fuel, we've been using primarily marine gas oil. In fact, almost exclusively marine gas oil. Um, because first of all, we, we don't need very much. It's really only when, for whatever reason, we're not able or permitted to use our scrubbers. And, you know, frankly, the price of marine gas oil has been much closer to the price of half percent sulfur uh, fuel oil than, frankly, I think we, anybody really expected. Um, and, and marine gas oil is a product that we're familiar with, that um, is stable, um, and, and so, uh, you know, hopefully uh, continued use of scrubbers will allow us when we need a compliant fuel to continue using marine gas oil. Thank you, Mr. Norton. Uh, I would also like to welcome Mr. Prokopakis. Uh, thank you. No problem. And I would like to introduce you in the discussion and to provide us with your feedback as an operator in terms of the use of, uh, first of all, what is your compliance strategy in terms of the fuel usage? And uh, if you are uh, using uh, the very low sulfur fuel oils, uh, your experience the first two months about any issues in terms of on their uh, quality, and if you believe that there, if you have any concern about their long usage of these very low sulfur fuel oils, because there might see some problems that we have not be able to to experience the first these two months. Thank you. Right. Very briefly. Briefly, of course, being a container company, the fuel supplies has been arranged by our charterer. So we have, uh, as clients, major liner companies. They were well prepared for the availability of the compliance fuel. And we were properly prepared <clears throat> to accept compliance fuel. So really, it was a very smooth transition. We didn't have any problems so far. Uh, we had only, out of 71 bunkerings, only two occasions where the uh, BDN was marginally different. We had two occasions where the fuel was not as expected to be with respect to the characteristics, but it was usable. Uh, and we had another two cases where, in one case, the low sulfur fuel oil was not available, and we had to use gas oil. And another case, which was 
a surprise to us was that heavy fuel for a scrubber ship was not available. So the charterer had to supply compliance fuel, which we use it, of course, with the use of scrubber. Now, as far as the uh, future is concerned, uh, we have introduced uh, six additional tests over and above the standard tests to see the long-term sustainability of these fuels and the effect on the engines, in the engines. However, it's very early to say anything. Uh, so far, so good. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Saroglu, you mentioned earlier uh, the issue of discrepancy between the BDNs and the actual results. Um, how did you handle these cases? I mean, did you make any notification? Did you have any issues with poor state controls? Uh, we, we advised either the physical supplier if uh, it was uh, a purchase, uh, if, if we, it was a spot trading vessel where we are responsible for the purchase of the fuel or our charterer. Uh, we advised also, and we sent a notification to the flag. And uh, basically, based on the reply we got from uh, the flag, uh, this we sent it to the vessel in order to have it in the file in case uh, anybody goes and does a physical inspection and they need to review all the documents. But uh, initially, the response that we had from uh, the flag that uh, was uh, provided that I understood it 100% correctly is that don't worry, what uh, you have in the BDN is fine, and therefore this is what is, uh, what is uh, you know, what, this is what you should worry about. If the BDN says that is uh, max 0.5%, then it's okay. You made uh, your, uh, you went the extra mile by advising um, the tests that you've done in your own samples. However, what uh, the BDN states is what governs the sulfur uh, compliance of the fuel that you have been provided with. Thank you. Um, now, the next question uh, to Anders, um, and maybe Hamis as well. Uh, Scrubbers gained strong momentum during the end of 2018 and first half of 2019, uh, but then there was a way to see approach. Um, do you see more installation within 2020 or, and mainly new buildings or retrofits as well? Thank you. Uh, first of all, I would like to extend my apologies from the CEO, Thomas Coniordos, which was supposed to be here today, but he couldn't make it, so I'm here. Hello, everyone. Uh, as to your question, we definitely saw the big first wave of scrubber orders coming in in 2018 and 2019. Uh, gave us a lot to do. And then towards the summer and fall last year, it was uh, a little calmer in the office. It's not anymore. So I think the next wave where the ship owners and operators are starting to realize that the fuel price differential will stabilize at a level that is well be of, uh, above what uh, the return on investment uh, indicates then. So they, they will, um, well, we see a lot of uh, scrubber orders coming in now, and that's very positive. As for the future, I think uh, the next year or two we'll still be dealing with retrofits, and then I think that market will be saturated, uh, but new buildings I, I see five to 10 years uh, minimum Thank you. Mr. Norton, your... Well, 
I, you know, I, I guess we're not really experts in what other people are doing. Um, uh, you know, we're finishing up our scrubber installation project. Um, you know, frankly, as soon as the employees are allowed to return to the repair yards, um, we anticipate getting the last few scrubbers on, on the remaining ships in our fleet quite quickly. Uh, almost all of them done by the end of the first quarter of this year with, you know, due to the COVID-19 virus, I think just a handful, a small handful, uh, probably finishing up in April. But, um, you know, uh, I uh, assume that people are looking at the um, financial returns to an investment in scrubbers and finding that to be attractive. That doesn't surprise me in the slightest way. Since you have already many hours of operation, can, can you uh, give us your experience in terms of uh, equipment reliability and also your experience with poor state controls? Um, uh, uh, well, you know, we've had uh, so far basically no issues with port state control. Um, and our reliability is um, quite good. Um, it's uh, well over 95% uh, available, um, uh, which is actually better than we were led to expect. Um, you know, hopefully there's some wood in this table. Um, uh, you know, it, it, frankly, our, our, our uh, Availability of, of the scrubbers is, is, I think it's actually above 98%, which you know, may even be better than we should expect. Um, and um, you know, it, it's been a learning curve. Um, certainly the scrubbers are not something that our crew was familiar with at the beginning. There's been a lot of training. Um, you know, uh, maintaining the sensors uh, is very important, uh, and the maintenance of the sensors is, you know, a different sort of work than the chief engineers are, are used to doing, but, you know, it's not that complicated, and, and uh, you know, they are learning how to do it. Thank you. Um, Anders, uh, the, the guidelines uh, for the certification, the 2015 guidelines for the certification of exhaust gas cleaning systems are under revision, are going to be finalized at this uh, PPR and to be approved at the next MAPC. Uh, could you please give us, uh, um, in summary, what, what are the main changes in terms of uh, technical aspects of, of these uh, guidelines? And I know that they are not going to be applied retrospectively, correct? They will be applied to new installations only. Yeah, so <clears throat> my colleague uh, Kai Lotun has been present at the PPR meetings in London this week, and he reported to me that uh, there will probably be no big uh, changes to the MAPC. Uh, it's just small improvements, technicalities. I think uh, the biggest change would be like the frequency that you measure, um, uh, for example, the water sampling or the, the gas analyzing will be more frequent measuring. 
and that's easy to implement in our in our software and uh, programming. And I think this would be hard to go back into all the ships and start reprogramming. So uh, it won't be retrospectively. Thank you. Uh, one question now to Mr. Saroglu, and then I would also like the feedback of Mr. Prokopakis about um, prices of keywords. Um, uh, as we mentioned already, there was uh, a rapid uh, increase of um, compliant fuel. How, how you see the prices uh, within these years, and, uh, and what is your uh, compliance strategy? Have you, uh, are you also considering uh, exhaust gas clean installation, or we are going to continue with compliant fuel? Uh, our compliance strategy has been to basically use uh, compliant fuels that are available uh, in the market. However, if we have a charter that is willing to <coughs> retrofit uh, uh, or if we have a new building contract uh, and they are willing to install uh, scrubbers and have it from the beginning, then this is something that we are willing to entertain. And uh, in a fleet of uh, 100 vessels, including uh, the vessels of the, private, uh, of the private group, we have four vessels actually on long-term uh, charter that uh, have uh, scrubbers. The rest of the vessels are going to go through this uh, compliance with 0.5% uh, and or gasoil. We have uh, on the prices, with the exception of uh, the very high price uh, environment of uh, December, prices uh, have come down. It's also a result of uh, crude prices uh, being uh, to, you know, the mid-50s, uh, 60 for Brent uh, yesterday, that has helped uh, significantly. But uh, there are ports where uh, gas oil, whether it's 0 0.5, like Singapore, for example, whether it's 0.5% or 0.1%, is at the same level, or maybe you can get it a little bit cheaper than 0.5%. Anytime we are in a port, uh, especially early into this implementation uh, of the 2020 compliant fuels, anytime we are in a port where uh, gas oil is uh, cheaper or at the same levels as 0.5% gas oil, we prefer to buy gas oil, 0.5 or 0.1, because we feel, first of all, the crew on board the vessel knows this product because they have used it for so many years. Sometimes 0.5 can have a very low viscosity, which means uh, basically you take a fuel that is more fuel oil-like, but has uh, properties like uh, a gas oil. And therefore, depending also on where you trade, instead of heating it, you need, before you put it in the engine, uh, you need to, to cool it. So these sometimes are difficult things for crews that are going up and down between the tropics and, uh, you know, uh, ports in, uh, in, the, in, uh, in America to, to handle. Therefore, we have to make their life also easier. And uh, 0.1 or 0.5 is the choice for us where we, where we feel that we get better value and less, uh, less potential issues. Thank you, George. Mr. Prokopakis, what do we believe about future prices? Well, actually, we are lucky enough because all our vessels are on, uh, most of our vessels are on long-term time charter, so we are not paying for the fuel. Uh, however, 
we have seen that the compliance fuel prices, they are, as expected, fully aligned with the prices of diesel. And for us, the most important thing is how this higher cost will influence the chartering market in the future and whether our clients, the liner, the liner companies, will be able to pass this cost to their customers. Um, so far, we have seen that this has been partially achieved. But if we assume that uh, by the 2030 from uh, charts we have seen from oil companies or from consultants, the compliance fuel would be approximately 28, 30% of the marine fuel and the heavy fuel oil will be approximately 20%. And if that will justify a sustainable high cost of the compliance fuel, then the decision to go to scrubbers seems to be, for the time being, fully justified. Thank you. Uh, and one question for Mrs. Wright. Um, how do you see uh, the gold fleet energy mix this decade and beyond? Um, what alternative fuels might emerge? And uh, what, do you, what is, do you know what is the refinery strategy in order to meet, I mean, um, with the um, IMO, greenhouse gas strategy, and do you see different approaches between refineries, for example, in the uh, United States, Europe, and Asia, in terms, I mean, towards the end of this decade and beyond? I mean, they are long strategy. I think that, that, that's a very wide set of questions there, but I'll, um, I'll do my best. In terms of refineries, to uh, quote the uh, esteemed colleague to uh, my left, I can only really talk about ourselves. Um, but certainly what we would see, uh, any company owning refineries has to look at their current portfolio, their expectations for their future portfolio, and make decisions around the investments based on the age and the capability of their refinery to adapt to changing trends. Obviously, that's a process we've gone through. Um, to meet the current requirements, and it's one that we continually look at, particularly um, with our customers, looking at the short term, we, we work with our customers to understand their needs um, and the needs of the markets into which we sell. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. That was, that was the cue to go on to the next oh, part of my it, big it's, question. It's, it's raining in the morning. It's... Okay. So if we move towards the, the future, obviously, the way the energy um, mix in fuels will change will be partly dependent on the IMO. That's what's driven the current change that we're on this panel to talk about. And obviously the next big deadline with the IMO is 2023 when we should get more visibility on what their future plans are. But if we look at the targets we do know about, we have 2030, we have 2050. In the short term, over the next decade, perhaps 15, 20 years, maybe longer, obviously, in terms of lower carbon fuels, the one we have available globally now is LNG. Uh, as a fuel or as an energy, it is available in over 150 locations around the world. What is still being developed um, and which we are developing is that last mile delivery to the vessel. So LNG can give, for the, for the ship, it can give 20-odd percent 
um, lower greenhouse gas emissions. If you add on to that energy-saving technologies, then we're getting into the range of plus 30% greenhouse gas savings. But obviously, when we look at the IMO's long-term target, they're looking towards zero carbon post-2050. But to deliver zero carbon fuels is very, very challenging. And therefore, we see LNG having quite a strong role to play in that journey towards zero carbon because the main fuels that are put forward as zero carbon fuels require an awful lot of work to be able to deliver them to ships. And we see that work in three main areas. One is collaboration. No one company is going to be able to deliver zero or even very low carbon fuels by itself. The other is we need the support from regulators and policymakers because without that incentivization and that structure to show us the direction we need to go in, it's not going to happen. And we also need a lot more technological development because even if we look at um, people talk about hydrogen, they talk about ammonia, there are significant challenges with both of those, not just in terms of the production and supply infrastructure, but in terms of the ability to transport it on a ship the ability for crews to handle it. Um, we've talked on this panel about crews and the need for them to adapt to IMO 2020. If we have new fuels, that requires a much greater level of crew training. Obviously, for LNG, we already have that structure. For any new future fuels, there's a whole ramification of changes that need to be made. And without that collaboration, the regulatory support and the technological development, that's what we need to be able to get there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Prokopakis and then Mr. Saraglu, we have two more, one, one minute. Um, do you see LNG is, is uh, an alternative fuel that you are investigating? Sorry. LNG, LNG, is it a fuel that as a company, Danaos, is investigating to use in the future? Is it an option for you? Well, if you have asked me this question last year, I would have said that for future investment, a conventional electronic engine with scrubbers would have been the solution. Asking me now, I think that, and of course, we always look what our charters would like to have. Um, LNG seems to be an intermediate solution uh, and it's becoming quite popular. Now, if we see a substantial investment into the LNG bankering network, this will assist a lot. Uh, and if we see a little bit of a reduction in the yards, in the prices of LNG vessels where so far they use the LNG as a means of excess profit. So if there is a momentum to LNG and we see it reduce prices from the yards, I think that it is a very tempting solution for the time being. Just a few seconds if you give yeah. us. Thank you very much. In our case as well, the majority of the fleet, uh, we are chartering out vessels. 70-30 is uh, uh, charter out, 30% is what we, the bankers that we put on for our own account. So 
Again, we rely on what our charters want. If uh, the charters want the XYZ fuel, we'll be there to, to provide the, the fuel. Uh, similarly, if you have asked the question uh, about uh, LNG last year, I think everybody would have said, uh, yes, LNG is the fuel, uh, the fuel of the future. If you ask the question now, with uh, this uh, discussion about uh, the decarbonization of the industry and the, whether this is going to happen in 2050 or in 2030 or whenever, it seems that uh, LNG is an intermediate uh, fuel because we need to have something else which is going to be even more environmentally friendly. At the same time, I don't think that uh, LNG uh, supply networks are out there the same way that uh, fuel oil networks uh, are in every port uh, in the world, so there is significant uh, infrastructure, infrastructure, LNG infrastructure investment that needs to take place from now until, you know, we will be able to bunker our vessels uh, with uh, LNG. And I don't know which of the two will come uh, first. Are, are we going to have another option, or you know, we are going to go through the next 10, 20 years with uh, LNG gaining more and more acceptance as a as a bunker fuel in the industry. Thank you very much, and with this we have to conclude. Nicholas, apologies for the short exceedances, two minutes of your time. Uh, and I would like to thank um, my panelists for their, I think, very great input, and thank you all for your attendance.